0: Stop reporting a crime or an emergency. Uh, an emergency crime There's a guy in a hospital running around with a shotgun. Copy. 911, is this reference shots being fired on fair Yes, it is. A hospital is a crazy guy. He was shooting with an automatic
1: weapon. Huh? Ma'am? It's Hi. one individual. All I got to see was a weapon. Looks like an AK
2: 47. At 3 o'clock, on what was an otherwise normal Monday afternoon, Dean A. Melberg entered the hospital on Fairchild Air Force Base with a MAC-90 assault rifle and a 75-round drum magazine. Rose Palmer was there that day.
3: Normally, uh, I would have been out of the clinic going to get a cup of coffee, but I just got so busy. All of a sudden, I heard shots. One of my co-workers, Kathy, said, "It's, it's construction on the building. I said, no, Kathy, that sounds like gunshots. Went out in the hall and we saw the shooter. Standing there and his eyes were just pure evil, just evil. We had two doors. Just as we got them locked down, he had made it down to us and was trying to get in. We took the people who were in the hall along with patients that were in the clinic. We wanted to try to save as many as we could. So we opened the windows and we were heisting the patients out of the window. And we told him, once you hit the ground, run, don't look back, just keep running. And he just continued to shoot. We were hearing screams and and cries for help, and pleading, people were pleading for their lives. There were so many shots fired, we assumed that there were two shooters.
2: Melberg had been honorably discharged from active duty on May 23, 1994 after he was diagnosed with multiple cognitive impairing medical conditions and deemed unfit for military service.
4: At the time, mass shootings were very rare and active shooter drills on military installations weren't a standardized training requirement. Melberg killed four people and wounded 22. He shot a pregnant woman in the stomach who would later lose her unborn child. His killing spree would go on for 30 minutes, before he was killed by senior Airman Andy Brown a Security Forces bicycle patrolman who responded to the
2: scene. This incident would leave the Air Force community reeling and led to enhanced security checkpoint procedures at installations worldwide.
4: Crisis is often a catalyst for change. I'm Staff Sergeant Janiqua Robinson. And I'm Tyler Prince. This is Pushing the Envelope.
1: scope of what our nation demands of us, today's security environment is perhaps one of the most challenging we've faced as an Air Force. We are in a global competition across the spectrum of potential operations, ranging from countering malign influence in gray zones all the way to deterring nuclear war. We cannot allow the gap between national security demands and the resources provided to meet those demands to grow, all while we continue to operate at a pace that challenges readiness. As captured in the National Defense Strategy, the United States faces an increasingly complex global security environment characterized by long-term strategic competition, a rapidly growing China and resurgent Russia aimed to coerce their regional neighbors, undermine long-standing alliances, and displace American influence from critical regions around the globe. Your Air Force must be ready to compete, deter, and win in these complex and evolving security environments. We must defend the homeland and provide a safe, secure, and effective nuclear deterrent, and be able to defeat a powerful conventional enemy, and continue to disrupt violent extremists and other tasks. The Air Force must be prepared to do all of these missions each and every day. As we have analyzed this array of mission sets, the unmistakable conclusion is, the Air Force is too small for what our nation needs.
4: Lieutenant General Arnold Bunch Military Deputy for the Office of the Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Acquisition, Technology, and Logistics testified before the United States Senate Committee on Armed Services about Air Force modernization April 9th, 2019.
1: Our airmen perform strategic and vital missions in all domains across the spectrum of conflict from 60 feet below the ground to our highest geosynchronous orbits. We are always there meeting and rising to the challenges by defeating our adversaries, deterring threats, and assuring our allies 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, and serving as a beacon of hope for many nations around the world. We cannot win this contest with an acquisition system from the Cold War. We must modernize at the speed of relevance. We are building tomorrow's Air Force more lethal and ready, faster and smarter. We are utilizing the new authorities you granted us, like Section 804 and tailoring traditional acquisition approaches to buy equipment and capabilities and experiment and prototype in new ways to meet a rapidly innovating adversary. As of the end of February of 2019, we estimate that we have saved over 88 years of acquisition schedule through the use of these tailored acquisitions and Section 804 authorities. We are confident that our initial goal of saving 100 years will be accomplished in less than one year of the pursuit. As a result, we are modernizing at the speed of relevance.
2: Five days earlier, General David Goldfein, the 21st Air Force Chief of Staff, and Secretary Heather Wilson, testified before the United States Senate Committee on Armed Services about the posture of the United States Air Force, and were asked about another relevant threat to readiness.
5: The Defense Department's most recent report on climate change discussed the impact of this human caused problem on our military operations and bases. And how would you rate Air Force installations as a whole in terms of their climate resilience? Um, Senator, it probably varies a lot. I know that overall we've got significant infrastructure challenges overall from a number of factors. Well, I see that the Air Force is requesting nearly $5 billion in emergency funds to rebuild Air Force bases in Florida and Nebraska alone that were damaged by natural disasters. So I think it's very important that the Air Force and the other military services continue to incorporate climate change in their planning so that when disaster strikes, the impact on operations is minimal. This clearly is a readiness issue. So thank you for your work on this. In
4: 2018, Offutt and Tyndall Air Force bases received extensive damage after separate natural disasters and requested billions of dollars in the 2019 budget to repair them. Tyndall's infrastructure was so devastated that the Air Force would essentially have to rebuild it from scratch, which presented the opportunity to make it the installation of the future. Crisis is often a catalyst for change.
2: From here, the Air Force began assessing which risks at installations could be attributed to climate change.
6: Which may sound fairly simple, but it was a 40-page analysis that really provided good information for the installation planners on how we wanted them to assess. And it included the 16 risks that, that from hurricanes to to fires that we needed uh, each installation to assess against. And what criteria, mostly using our A3 weather office, would be the uh, kind of authoritative source upon which they could rely.
2: Jennifer Miller. The Acting Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Installations, Environment, and Energy testified before the House Armed Services Committee on July 14, 2021 about the Air Force's 2022 budget request for military construction, energy, and environmental programs.
6: We did that initial screening for um, over 80 of our installations, and then what we've done with that now is start putting that into our installation development plan. So within the next five years, now that everyone's done the initial assessment, that will roll into our installation development plans. As we have that information, though, it allows us to modify, as an example of the Tyndall Rebuild and the Offit uh, floodplain rise, to modify based on the risk assessment, not only of what type of risk it would be, that, but then we also assessed each as a yellow, green, red uh, for the zero to 25 year, and then also the 25 to 50 year look.
2: While this initial risk assessment builds the framework for installations to evaluate their own climate-related risks and plan contingencies around natural disasters, something is churning at Tyndall.
4: The installation of the future has become a testing bed of technology. Innovations that will be commonplace in 10 to 15 years are being fielded by the Natural Disaster Recovery Program Management Office today. Those new acquisition authorities that Lieutenant General Bunch mentioned in his testimony have since been used to procure the contracts needed to design smart buildings that can diagnose faulty equipment, withstand 165-mile-per-hour winds, and purchase an array of sensors that feed raw data into those buildings in real time. These innovations could put the Air Force in the position to thwart the next threat, so the catalyst for change becomes the need to improve, instead of crisis.
0: So my name is Second Lieutenant Nicholas Kapp, and I am one of the Innovation Element co-leads at the Tyndall Air Force Base AFCEC Natural Disaster Recovery Project Management Office. In the PMO here, we work on the entire Natural Disaster Recovery Program, so the rebuilds at Tyndall, at Joint Base Langley-Eustis in Virginia, as well at Offutt Air Force Base. And where I particularly work in innovation is implementing that kind of base of the future mentality. our boss says there's no real uh, playbook for how to do the base of the future, so we're a part of that, trying to find out what innovative technologies and different processes we can kind of streamline and implement here at Tyndall so it can be an example for the rest of the Air Force as a whole.
4: One of those innovative technologies is the Insulation Resilience Operations Center, or IROC.
0: Your security forces, your logisticians, your engineers, um, and your force support personnel, everybody's got their own common operating picture. So everyone's got their own software that they use for how they do business. And it was becoming very stove
4: The data that was being aggregated by security forces wasn't being shared with the fire department or civil engineers and vice versa.
0: And that made it very difficult and was making it a bit cumbersome to get responses and get uh, data to the right people. So what the, uh, what the IROC platform is doing is it's not rewriting what operating pictures are going to happen it's pulling in those common operating pictures those CONOPS, ops and putting them in one place in a what we call a data lake so that you're able to access that at a higher level than just what the security forces see or what the CE troops see. Everybody's able to kind of pick and choose what they want to see as it's pulled into that data lake, which is IROC. So that's kind of how it came about, was trying to break down the stovepipes between uh, different functional career fields to speed up response times and get information to the right people faster.
4: People like Lieutenant Colonel Brandy Smart, the commander of the 325th Civil Engineer Squadron, who is working with the developers to refine how the IROC will complement civil engineers.
6: So in our role in base maintenance, a lot of times we don't know that something is failing until a user calls. So then our technicians peel off, go try to troubleshoot that emergency, and if they don't know what's going on, it might take them a little while to to bring that mission back up.
4: The IROC reports maintenance concerns through a network of sensors throughout the infrastructure of the base.
6: Those sensors that are on all that equipment are feeding into a data center. And so there's smart technology that starts notifying you that something's going on. So you don't have somebody calling in saying, my, my HVAC unit sounds wonky. Uh, the sensors on those are gonna pick that up, alert someone in that control center who can then reach out to the craftsman to actually go effect it before it actually has a problem.
4: It's zero 08 on a Monday morning and a water main breaks near the main gate as everyone is trickling in for duty. The initial burst of water causes a minor accident on the scene that is complicated by hundreds of gallons of water spilling onto the street. The traffic is making it difficult for first responders to get through.
2: At most installations present day, security forces personnel would secure the scene while firefighters arrive to assess the situation. Only then would the local civil engineering squadron be called in. With the IROC, events like these could be prevented altogether.
4: Sensors throughout the miles of water piping could detect the leak at its infancy, display the location and current damage, which means civil engineers could verify and fix the leak before it becomes a major problem.
2: And these aren't the only sensors being incorporated into the rebuild. In order to get a full understanding of any situation happening on base, Multiple agencies need to be actively engaged in ensuring the mission continues. Mission assurance is all about the
7: reduction of risk to mission and reduction of risk to assets. Integrated defense is a team sport. It relies on professionals from all different disciplines ranging from communications, civil engineers, defenders, and operators. So again, when we can identify problems and ingest data that may seem only specific to the comm squadron, but we all know without comm, you're just camping. So if all the communications go down, what's our primary alternative contingency and expedient ways of communicating? We
2: are a cohesive unit, and the base is that power projection platform. Major Jordan Chris is the commander of the 325th Security Forces Squadron who will use the data the IROC and its sensors provide to enhance the squadron's situational awareness. So
7: the way we're going to use the gunshot detection along with our weapons recognition data analytics software, XeroAWS, we are going to essentially create that layered defense, that defense in depth where we will take our camera systems that have the zero eye software that will do that weapons recognition data analytics and tell you, hey, there's a potential adversary approaching the building with a firearm. You have occupancy sensors, so now you know as responding defenders, firefighter and medical, you can front load, how much support do I need to bring to this building? What kind of fight am I getting into? and again, remotely leverage those pieces of information to provide the most immediate support to that rescue task force while getting after the adversary as quickly as possible. Because while that situation is happening, we've seen certain active shooter situations, we've seen certain contingencies last hours, all because people can't keep track of where that adversary is going.
4: During the mass shooting at Fairchild Air Force Base, Melberg began his rampage in a hospital annex building firing at personnel and patients as he moved through it. He would continue to the main hospital building, seemingly shooting at random.
2: When he was finally stopped by patrolman Senior Airman Andy Brown, he had moved on from the main building and into the parking lot outside. Throughout the shooting, survivors and first responders received and passed on conflicting information.
5: I heard what I thought was a backfiring car, uh, but then I heard my and co-worker know, am I calling about the shooting at Fairchild? And I said, yes. And they said, do you know how many shooters there are? So I started to follow him until he changed his direction and went by me and said, there's somebody out there shooting
4: the people. So I ran back to my Then the SWAT team came down and they escorted us out of the basement onto the first floor and we were in the facility just waiting to get out because they still, at that point, were not sure if it was an additional shooter.
8: So right now, when there's a emergency or something that happens in a facility, oftentimes the way that the security forces or local law enforcement hear about that is they'll get a a call to to 911, they'll get a fire alarm pulled, And then oftentimes if they get a call, you know, the person's frazzled, the person doesn't know all the specifics uh, of the, you know, the details of the incident, and so they have to uh, do their best. And so that fog of war causes delay. Uh, We've got these gunshot detection sensors and uh, occupancy analysis sensors. These sensors feed directly into IROC, they feed in real time, they feed in instantaneously. So if, for example, You have an active shooter that comes into a facility and they fire a weapon. Immediately, a lot of things happen simultaneously. The first is, is the building is notified. The giant voice comes on, the alarm goes off, and all of the occupants know that something bad is happening. Other things that happen, is that signal goes immediately to law enforcement. So it it goes immediately to the base defense operations center where the security forces folks are managing, uh, you know, the dashboards, managing the facilities, and they can see exactly where the shot went off, what building it's in, but in addition, they can see exactly where in the building the shot went off.
4: Lowell Ussery is the branch chief for the Natural Disaster Recovery Project Management Office and has been directly involved with brainstorming and procuring innovative assets. As the installation of the future, Tyndall is simply a proving ground for technology that should enhance Air Force installations worldwide.
2: Situational awareness requires an enhanced understanding of the terrain surrounding the base. In order to use the IROC as a unified information platform through which agencies across the installation can maintain situational awareness, you need something mobile.
4: To make it work, the PMO is onboarding novel and existing technologies sensors will supply the IROC with even more raw data in real time. Mobile sensor platforms, like unmanned aerial systems, or even quadrupedal unmanned ground vehicles, also known as QUGVs, better known as robot dogs.
7: So right now, we have four robots that are out actively patrolling the flight line side of Tyndall Air Force Base, places where we don't necessarily want to have defenders just walking, places where static camera systems can't look, can't identify threats. But again, we can send these mobile sensor platforms that have persistent communications, that have continuous recording capability, thermal imaging, camera, and once they've identified a potential adversary, we can actually speak through the robot and challenge the individual that we see and then as the response forces are going to meet this potential adversary that person's so focused on this robot that we again have put them at a disadvantage we've given our defenders the opportunity to get to that person while they're still trying to process who's out there what's watching them and again this robot doesn't get tired doesn't get hungry doesn't get thirsty it goes out on this patrol path for about six hours, comes back, recharges while the next one goes out. An ability for a continuously detecting sensor platform so that now our defenders can be that rapid response force going into a fight with a lot better information versus having to use their bodies to identify, detect, and track an adversary, use the technology to do that so that again our defenders can focus on defending
2: and defeating and helping mitigate the effects of that attack. The Air Force is leveraging technology to automate threat detection, so airmen can spend their energy deciding on the right course of action. Across the total force, no matter the career field, the call to accelerate change means delegating mundane, repeatable, and in some cases dangerous tasks to smart technology.
4: This looks like leveraging a base rebuild as an opportunity to fortify the installation against the next climate disaster while also taking that opportunity to incorporate technology that can help deter the next active shooter. This looks like taking each opportunity to innovate as an open invitation to push the envelope.
7: As the Air Force, it's baked into our culture to meld the warfighter with technology. We cannot fight tomorrow's conflict with yesterday's equipment. We cannot leave our power projection platforms vulnerable, especially in the contested environments of the future war. So ideally, with this technology, we can utilize it to achieve our desired effects of integrated defense, automate, streamline, and reduce the cognitive overload that can happen, especially during a contingency or wartime situation. When we can use technology that far surpasses the human capacity to identify and analyze tons and tons of data, We dramatically enhance our situational awareness for our defenders while decreasing the situational awareness for our adversaries. And ultimately, that's how we're going to win the fight.
2: Pushing the Envelope is created by Airman Magazine and the Defense Media Activity. This episode was produced by Staff Sergeant Janiqua Robinson and me, Tyler Prince. All editing and sound design were conducted by Staff Sergeant Robinson.
4: Bob Houlihan is our Editor-in-Chief. Special thanks to the survivors, historian, and public affairs team at Fairchild Air Force Base and the project management office at Tyndall Air Force Base. You can find all of Airman's audio content wherever you get your podcasts.